I had someone ask me recently about my favorite Hebrew word. When was the last time somebody asked you that question? What would you say? Um, yeah, I thought, oh, trying to, you're trying to trick me here. Because there's just so many. Uh, no, actually, I thought, what, do you really think at 35 years later that I'm really like just like pumping with a lot of uh, Hebrew still up in my head? Um, but I, I came up with a few things, and, and none of them really, really good. They were Hebrew, though. I mean, I, 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 did, I didn't make up words. But um, then, then a few days later, I was working on this text and uh, talking about glory. And it hit me. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. And that should have been the first thing off of you know, that. That should have been what I said, kavod. Kavod is this cool. It's, just, it's, it's almost an onomatopoeia. Like if I said to you, kavod, you'd be like, oh, it must be something weighty and important. Well, it means weighty and important. And it, it, it specifically refers to the glory of God. So it, it's used of something that is vastly, deeply, wonderfully important. I think, I think Paul is actually thinking of the Hebrew when in Greek he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I think Paul was just taking the Hebrew idea and just, just kind of morphing it into something there with the Greek and just to bring across that idea, the weight of glory. What is it? And it's funny, in English, we actually use weight in kind of the same way, don't we? we when, if, if you say something is really weighty, what are you saying? You're saying compared to, every, you think of a scale, just the old-fashioned scale, boys and girls that don't remember what those things looked like. You know, you had a, a, an arm on each, and, 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 and you put the weight, and it would tell you how much something weighed versus what something else weighed. And if something was really heavy, it would bring the scales down on that side. We think about God's glory, God's importance, the weight of, of, of God's being. That is kind of communicated in the idea of glory. And that's what I want us to talk about and look at today is the glory of the gospel and really gaining a grasp of that. Comprehend the glorious weight of the gospel. If we get a hold of that, we're going to get a lot of things right. Does that make sense? I get, it, it, in light of everything else, if, if, if we as Christians just really get a good handle and comprehend the glory, the glorious weight of the gospel, everything else will fall into place. All right? Well, that's my, that's my uh, thesis today. But um, first, I want to kind of give you a little background here. If you like topography and you like geography and you like all of those travel narratives and stuff, there's a lot of it going here, which I'm going to almost skip over. Except to say that Paul had been in Ephesus. You remember that? He'd been there for two years. Uh, that was in Asia Minor. Paul was trying to return, but he wanted to return in kind of a, a weird loop to get back. So instead of going back home in an eastward direction, he went westward. He went across up to Macedonia. He went down into Greece. He came back around in this sort of circuitous route. He got back to, um, to Asia Minor. He gets to Troas. How many remember Troas? You remember the name Troas? where Eutychus fell out the window? Does that, yeah, does that ring a bell? Okay, so he said there he was in Troas, and, uh, and then after that, he, he continues down the coast. He's come down the coast of Asia Minor, and, he, and that forces him to pass Ephesus. Well, he'd spent two years in Ephesus. He'd had great ministry in Ephesus, and there would have been a natural desire for him to stop in Ephesus and spend time with the church there. 
but he's trying to get back. He's traveling at a time of year. He's trying to get there before winter, you know, when, and, and, he, and he wants to get there in time for Pentecost. So he bypasses Ephesus. He comes to Miletus. Ephesus is still on his mind, so he sends for the elders from Ephesus to come and meet him there. So that's the geography. Yeah? Painless, right? That's pretty painless. Anyway, so let's, let's look at this idea of the glory of the gospel. We're in Acts 20 here. It's one of my absolute favorite passages. You'll find as you go through the Christian life that, that there are passages that are like anchor points in the Bible where you can almost always go back there and get a lot of truth and, and, and a lot of stuff radiates outward from that passage. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of those. Acts chapter 20 is definitely one of those for me. I find often theological questions. I'll, I'll be right back in Acts chapter 20. But Okay, first of all, live fearlessly for the gospel. I'm reading this again. Uh, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Paul is reminding them of his life. Paul's life was a teaching thing in and of itself. Like apart from all the things he taught, just his life was, was a teaching in and of itself. He calls the elders there. He wants to remind them of that which, which they, they really already knew. I'd, earlier in a sermon, I remember comparing uh, Paul to a honey badger. You know, a honey badger is just a, a, a unique animal among animals. It's so fierce, it's so courageous. It just doesn't take no for an answer. There's no quit, there's no stop with a honey badger. Paul was very much that kind. And he sort of reminds them of that. This, 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 is, this is meant for their edification, just to remember, first of all, how he had lived. He had lived with humility. How many can say they lived with humility? You say, well, I couldn't say it because if I said it, then I wouldn't be humble, Right? That's what, because we don't understand humility, we don't understand the biblical concept of humility, we think of false humility, like, oh, I can't say anything good about myself, that, that kind of an idea of humility. But humility in Scripture is having the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is that which puts others ahead of themselves. It, it puts their needs ahead. It, it, it lives to serve others. So humility is, is, is more put, preferential treatment of others over oneself. And Paul can say that, that he lived humbly. He was sincere. His ministry, his life was heartfelt among them. He talks about tears and trials as he faced the plots of the Jews. He's not trying to convince them of anything. Understand, they know this. He spent two years there. They fully grasp what he's saying he's just calling it to mind to so that they will understand not how great he is but i'm convinced he's bringing that to their attention to remind them how essential and important and glorious the gospel is that would that would motivate a person to live that way do you remember his time at the hall of tyrannus there in ephesus we talked about the fact that there at the hall of tyrannus i'm gonna get a drink of water here getting dry that he was working during the heat of the day. It would have been the time when the, when the school wasn't being used, during the siesta time when it, when it was so hot nobody went to work. That's when Paul was doing that. And then on top of that, he says he went house to house. So he's working during the heat of the day, 
And then in his spare time, so-called, what is he doing? He's taking the gospel. He's taking the teaching of the gospel, and he's going literally from house to house in order that all might hear. I want you to notice in uh, verse 20, the wording here where he says, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. What does it mean to shrink back? What is your image when you think of the word shrink back? I think of a dog, you know, you, dogs can be very, you know, the, their bark is worse than their bite, and there's a lot of little dogs with a lot of, oh, bravado, but then if you go toward them, not, don't do this with certain breeds, but um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of dogs out there that if you turn and face them and start toward them, what does the dog do? Shrinks back turns around, puts his tail between his legs, says, hey, I was just kidding, I'm out of here. I don't want to pair, I, I, I just thought I could scare you. But seeing how I can't, you know what? I'm not going to pay the fine. I'm not going to go there. I don't want to bear the cost of my own bravery. Paul says, I didn't shrink back. Paul was fearless. His whole, his whole life was so, so, so fearless. And you could read his priorities by the way he lived. Because when a person lives that way, you look at it and you go, what makes them live that way? Why? What is so weighty? <laughs> what, what, what is so valuable, so glorious and worthwhile that you would live in that just complete sort of almost out of control commitment to a thing? And it's the weight of the glory of the gospel. If we compare ourselves to Paul, um, we're going to come up short for one. Most of us, all of us in this room, I'm pretty confident, are going to come up short, yours truly included. I mean, you look at that, what, you could feel guilty, which might be useful, might not. I don't know that guilt will help you a lot. If you want to really get a hold of the way Paul lived and, and to live fearlessly for the gospel the way Paul did, it seems to me that what you need to do is get a hold of the gospel the way Paul had a hold of the gospel. Does that make sense? In other words, I can get up here and preach and say, you should live like Paul, and you should be selfless, and you should be fearless, and you should be courageous, and you'd go, okay, 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 but I, see, but if you want to live that way, it's not me shaking my finger at you, it, it, it's us seeing the gospel and the worth and the weight of the gospel the way Paul saw it, and, it, and if we capture that, then the rest kind of takes care of itself, because we see its value. Fearlessly call for a response to the gospel. Uh, let me read to you the verse that crystallizes the proper response to the gospel. Remember, I said that there are these key places in Scripture that I tend to go to again and again because they just distill truth very well. 1 Corinthians 15 describes what the gospel is. The gospel that we believe that saves us is a gospel of Christ's death for sinners, his burial, his resurrection. That's the gospel, yes? Okay. What is the response to the gospel? For that, I don't go to 1 Corinthians uh, 15, although it, it speaks of faith there, and I could, I could go there if I needed to. But I tend to come over to Acts chapter 20 for that, because Paul just describes it clearly, distinctly, simply. He says, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this, this is like one of the absolute best distillations of what conversion is all about. If, you hear the, if you're not a believer and you hear the gospel and, and, and you go, wow, that sounds good, 
that sounds attractive. What must I do? How, how do I respond to this, this truth that you're sharing with me? The answer is here. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's hit repentance really quick. Borrowing from Hebrew again. Maybe this should have been my favorite Hebrew word. The Hebrew word, you know, I don't have that many committed to memory, but I still remember this, is the word shuv. Shuv. Sounds like shoe, but with a shove, kind of a shuv. And it, and it means to turn. The, the idea of repentance in the Old Testament was based on the idea of turning. When you bring it into the Greek language, there's some, there's some I don't want to say morphine, but, 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 it, but it kind of en- enriches it that much more. But I think it retains the idea of turning, that we, that we like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah chapter 53, yes? Another one of those core chapters that you can keep going back to. But we all like sheep have gone astray. What we must do in faith is we must turn from the way we're going, that way of rebellion and sin and, and, and being lost, and turn and look to Jesus Christ. Peter talks about it that way. He doesn't actually use the word repentance here, but you'll see it. 1 Peter 2.25, he says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So that's a picture of the Christian life, of that repentance. And then as we turn to him, we put our trust and our faith in Jesus. Now, lest we have a wrong notion theologically, never say that we're saved by two things. Please never formulate it this way. We are not saved by two acts or, or works of our own in any way, shape, or form. One is being repentance, one is being faith. I knew somebody that said, well, we're saved by three things that we do. One is we repent, secondly is we believe, and thirdly, we get baptized. I've heard weird formulations like that. We are saved by God's grace in the gospel coming through the channel of faith. That is how it, it is given to us by wor- the work of the Holy Spirit. It's faith. But the kind of faith that saves is a repentant kind of faith. You have to go from one to go to the other. You can't go to the other without having turned from from the one. Does that make sense? Like, let's say I was trying to get you converted in terms of your politics. Everybody wants the pastor up here trying to convert you to your different, his. So let's say, let's say, um, this is really dangerous to even suggest, but say I want to get you in the Bulmusian party. The party of the bull moose. You remember that party? I wonder if there's a chapter of that still in existence anywhere. Teddy Roosevelt, in case those of you uh, are wondering where that might have come from. Yes? No, Carl? Bull moose party? I don't know. He's a history guy. Um, Say I start trying to convince you to become part of it. Now, the obvious, to convert you to bull mooseianism would involve, first of all, you leaving... What a Republican or Democratic Party in order to become a bull moose. It just makes it, it's, it's, it's not two things, it's one thing. To turn to Christ in faith, we must turn away from the way we were going. And Paul preached this fearlessly. He says, testifying to both Jew and Greek. It's an extension of that earlier, not shrinking back. Paul was fearless to keep proclaiming the gospel, but not just to proclaim it, but even to those who were trying to do him injury, to the Jews in the synagogue, to the, you know, the Demetrius, uh, the artisans of, of, of Artemis and all of that. 
he would call them not only to hear the gospel, but to respond to the gospel. He was a honey badger. It didn't matter what they threw against him. His concern was, was to bring the gospel and call men to repentance. Now, how do we get there? Because I'm guessing we're not as fired up as Paul. Is that an exaggeration on my part? I, anybody nicknamed honey badger in here? Because you're so gung-ho for the gospel, you just can't be. Hmm? Okay, so how do we get there? How would we get there? if we, it, Assuming we want to try. How do we get to that place of conviction that Paul has? Well, let me ask you this. Why do you think, this is just sort of a study in human nature, but you remember how back in, say, the early 1940s, how there were men that would gladly lie in order to get into the service, like, oh, I'm really 18. They were 16, but they were lying. Or, I'm, you know, I'm perfectly healthy and I've got this, this fake document to prove it. Why would men lie to be able to go to war? And then conversely, 20-some years later or so, why would other men have lied to get out of going to war? What was the difference? Because people sometimes think, well, it was just the difference between two generations. They were just different qualitatively. I think it's the difference between, in the one case, people knew the weight of the cause for which they were fighting. They went, I understand this. This is my homeland. We've been attacked. This matters. And, and, and they were willing to go and suffer and bleed and die. And then, conversely, others were like, I don't understand why. I don't get the weight. I don't get the gravity of it. I don't understand. Therein lies the difference. Bravery for the gospel happens when we understand the weight of the gospel. When that, when that weight starts to weigh upon us and we see it for what it is, when we see the weight of our own sin, why do Christians have to keep talking about sin we've been forgiven? Because we need to understand just the cost and just the value of what's been done for us. Over and against the weight of our sin is the glory of the gospel that outweighs everything, every, every way in which we've offended God's law has been outweighed by the miraculous and wondrous work of Christ. Glory to that. When we see the glory of that, when we see the, the, the sheer value of human souls, of lives that are, that are worth more than all to the world, according to Jesus, going into a Christless eternity, when we see the evil that's around us. And man, lately it just feels, in so many cases, that, that we just see more and more evil in our society. We think, well, what? What can, what can set this, you know, what can we set against this? What would outweigh all the evil of our society today? The glorious weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think when we see that, then, it, then, then the desire to fearlessly call people to respond to the gospel, it, it, it just makes sense. It rolls out from that. Fearlessly risk all for the sake of the gospel. So Paul is uh, still using himself as an example, but now he shifts. There's an interesting shift of time because what he's been doing up to this point is reminding them of what he was like when he was with them. Hasn't really even been that long, and maybe some portion of a year since he was, but but he's looking back at this. Now for Paul, even though we're looking 2,000 years back at this, um, for Paul, he's thinking of, of what's happening right then and what's coming upon him. So he's looking future now. He says, and now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. 
but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. There, there's that, that weighted glory. And now behold, I know that none of, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. What was Paul willing to face? Let's break it down. First of all, he's facing not knowing. Isn't not knowing the worst? No, it's not technically the worst. Worst would be like torture and dismemberment and things like that. But a close second is anticipating what you don't know is going to happen to you and and letting that play on your mind. And Paul says, I go, and he knows in general terms, that, that afflictions await him, but he doesn't know the specifics. He doesn't know what is, is coming upon him. But, but what he's been told, what the Holy Spirit who constrains him is telling him is that afflictions and imprisonment await. Think about all Paul has already been through at this point. It is a lot harder to face punishment and pain i've used this illustration talked about it before that that you know if you've been if you've stepped up to the plate once and accepted whatever it might be you know 40 lashes minus one or whatever the case might be the first time you might be really brave the second time it's going to be miraculous that you can face it a second time because now you know what the pain feels like and Paul's going right back into the jaws of, of, of the monster. He, he knows exactly. He's been, he's been in prison. He's been put in that deep, dark, dank dungeon in Philippi. Been beaten. He's, had, had, he's been stoned to death and a number of other things. And yet, this is what he's walking back into. Think about that. Think about the gravity of that for just a minute. And to show you that Paul was not given a crystal ball, yeah, he was a prophet. And the Lord told him what the Lord wanted him to know, but there were things Paul didn't know. He says, I I know I'm not going to see any of you again. The truth of the matter is, apparently, and I have not worked this out, but if you study Paul's life from all the epistles, the the, the good money is is that um, he probably did actually see the Ephesians again after this. So that's interesting. It's like Paul is, clearly Paul is assuming the worst. And he's like, yep, I'm not going to see any of you guys again. And uh, and that that didn't end end up being the reality. But that's, the, that's what he's willing to face. He is risking all of that for the sake of the gospel. Why? Why would he risk even that? He says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to, my, to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to, the, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. How do you risk everything? How does anyone say that their own life is of no importance to them? Think about that for a minute. Because Paul, elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, Paul can say to men, you know, no one ever hated themselves, but they love their own body, and that's why they should love their wives, because if they love their wives the way they love their own body, they'll love them a lot, right? That's the logic of that. But here Paul says of his own life, it's not worth anything to me compared compared to, to what it is I'm trying to accomplish for the gospel. Jesus called him. And Paul always treated his ministry as, as just the, the most amazing gift. And I love that about Paul. Because I'm not sure every pastor, uh, yours inc- <laughs> truly included, necessarily always feels that. Um, like, oh, I'm just 
springing out of bed today feeling so good about the ministry to which God has called me. It's not always the case, I have to tell you. But Paul, when he writes about it, when he talks about it, it's like, man, meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, being spun around the way he was, and just just being given this, this glorious mission, the weight of that. I think that's, Paul could see it. Paul could understand it. Paul could grasp just the sheer magnitude that he had been allowed to be engaged in that ministry was huge to him. But moreover, for him, it's about testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what he says. That's what he has to do. Above all things, he, he must testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is Paul's passion. The gospel isn't just a job. It's his, it's his lifeblood. It's the ultimate good and only hope for mankind. This is the treasure, the Bible says, for which a man will go and sell all that he has in order to take hold of it. It doesn't mean we can buy our salvation. It's saying to us, the gospel should be that level of treasure to us. And I think part of the problem is Christians so often, the gospel is like this, oh, I'm so happy I've got the gospel. It's like a little thing I keep on the shelf that I can go over every once in a while and look at and go, oh, that's so nice that I've got that. No, it's like everything. It's the world. It's, it's ultimately the most important thing for us. And Paul can speak of it that way. For that, he will risk everything. Human beings are odd creatures. I've been thinking this a lot lately during the TikTok generation. Um, and I will watch an occasional, I don't have TikTok, but I will, Instagram has some of the similar kinds of videos, these little 10 second things that are, enriching to our lives um but you see a lot of the kind of video that i'm just going to describe to you but i saw this yesterday and i went no what what no no this is so it was shot from above and this guy is jumping off a cliff actually he's running jumping off a cliff from he has to clear this overhang which he barely does about 20 feet below and then he falls another like 50 feet into a river which is really narrow and it looks about as deep as a puddle and why? why? Why would you do that, young man? Why would you risk you know, your, 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 your life and, and your physical well-being for, so that you can have a 10-second video? Do you know how long that's going to last? You know, I mean, if you hit the rock, it's going to last longer. But still, I mean, why, why would you want to do that? For the glory of it, I guess, right? For the, for the fame and the glory of being able to say, hey, I did it, and now the whole world has seen it. Most of us are going the opposite way. How many of you are just trying to live the longest, healthiest life you can with the least risks? Yes, I see that, that hand, but, right? Eventually, we kind of get to that place. It's like, yeah, I'm just kind of keeping my risks down, down low, you know? I mean, uh, should I eat a hamburger? I don't know. Maybe that's too much risk or whatever the case might be. What, what, but, but the thing is, I think we are wired. I think we are wired to risk great things but we're only willing to risk great things for great things. Yeah? I, th- I think it's in our humanity to want to live and, and, even, and even die for something that really matters, for something that's really glorious. Not a 10-second TikTok video, mind you, but for something really, really tremendous, and that is the glory of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we don't look instinctively 
at the gospel and feel that kind of worth, that kind of glory, that kind of weight, then I don't think we've comprehended the gospel. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I'm saying if, if, if we don't see the worth and the value and the weight of that the way Paul did, I, I, I don't think we've yet fully grabbed hold of it, have we? Because it's of such great weight. Finally, fearlessly face what is at stake. The weight of the glory of the gospel is seen in the light of what is really at stake if we deny the gospel. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink. There, there's that same word, that same concept again. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul did not shrink back. He was fearless in telling them the gospel, but it had to do, and one of the huge motivating factors was the sheer matter of what was at stake here. Note the word of warning, I am innocent of your blood. That a strange expression. Like, why would you say that to somebody? Husbands, do you ever say that to your wife? Yeah, I'm going off to work, but I am innocent of your blood, lady. You ever say that? No? doesn't really come up much does it what is Paul saying he's saying I the whole drive working daily in the heat at the at the hall of Tyrannus and going house to house and risking everything I did tirelessly humbly for your sake was all so that you would hear the entire counsel of God concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ and having heard it that you might believe that you might be saved and if you're not saved It's not that I didn't try. I've done everything I can. I am innocent. It is on you now. That blood is on your head, not on mine if if you've rejected that. There's an old song from Blind Willie Johnson. You remember Blind Willie Johnson. Yeah, okay. Uh, Led Zeppelin took this song and completely ruined it, but it's a song, Nobody's Fault But Mine. You know, Nobody's Fault But Mine, Nobody's Fault But Mine. How many of you have heard that song? I got a Bible in my home. I got a Bible in my home. If I don't read it, my soul be lost. Nobody's fault but mine. Sister taught me how to read. Sister taught me how to read. If I don't read it, my soul be lost. Nobody's fault but mine. And that's what Paul is really saying here. He's saying, man, I have given you the gospel. I, I did everything in my power. And now that, 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 that comes down to you. Think about if you were on a cruise ship for a moment, which is a, a nice thought, so don't drift away too far on me there on that cruise ship. But... How many have ever looked over, over the railing on a cruise ship as you're, as you're really making time as they're trying to get to the next destination and things go by so fast you'll see like a little thing of wood or a, or a sea otter or whatever and it's, you know, I grab it. So imagine you're standing there and somebody goes overboard, which happens from time to time. That usually makes the news. They're probably making a TikTok video. Anyway, so somebody goes in and you look at it and you think, huh. I'm really trying to get to the dining room and hit that buffet, though, really quick. Otherwise, I'd probably say something. And you just speed on your way to get to the buffet for the roast beef before it's gone. Um, it won't be gone, by the way. That never happens. But um, that be, why did the, if the person dies, why? Well, because they went overboard. That's their fault. But you didn't do anything. It's, that blood is partially on you. That's partly your responsibility. Now, if you make a big scene and you start hitting the emergency panic buttons and you, you, know, you grab somebody in a uniform, there's somebody overboard and, you, and you're throwing life preservers, then if that person dies, that's not on you. That's not, it, it, they died because they fell into the water. 
the weight of the glory of the gospel is seen in its power to save people from the grip of Satan, from sin and death and hell. To comprehend the weight of the glory of the gospel, we have to understand what is at stake. Men's lives, the value of the souls of those around us are at stake. And and when we see it in that light, we'd want to share it. We'd want to tell people the gospel. We want to call them to repent and believe. That's the church that we want to be here at Grace. That is our uh, desire. That is, that is what we're going for. There are other good things that a person can do, and there are many good works that churches can be engaged in, and, and, and you can think of those off the top of your head, good things that would, would uh, maybe put food on somebody's table or uh, take care of somebody that was suffering, and, and we, we want to be engaged in those kinds of things as much as God enables us. But the central focus of the church has to be the business of declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be honey badgers on that deal, don't we? We, we, we need to be willing to live for it, to live sacrificially for it, to risk our lives for it because we see the stakes. We understand how much is really at risk and so we call men everywhere to hear the gospel, to respond to the gospel in repentance and in faith. We would say to you today, if you're here and you don't know Christ, then we hold forth to you his worth, the worth of the glory of the only begotten Son of God. He came into this world, Paul says, to die for sinners. He was put to death, he was buried, he rose the third day by the power of God, by the power of that everlasting life. He rose, he, he went up into heaven, he's coming again. That's the gospel, and we just urge you, For God's sake, for Christ's sake, we urge you, hear the gospel. Look to Christ. Turn from the way you're going. You're like a sheep. You've gone astray. Turn back. Return to the shepherd of your soul. Believe in him and be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we need a greater, deeper, lasting grasp of of the sheer glorious weight of your gospel. Help us to have that. Help us to see it. Lord, we, we, we are not like Paul, not, not so much, and we do count our lives as precious, and we do worry a good deal about our own, our own current situations, and I guess that's normal, Lord, but, but help us in the midst of whatever we're going through to see the weight of the gospel and to see how how much has been given to us and with that to see the great responsibility that we have that we might declare it and declare it frequently at every opportunity wherever we can so that others would hear and respond and be saved we ask lord that you would do that we we just give ourselves to it we want to be um completely sold out to your gospel help us to to be so um, we, need to, we need to have eyes for it, though, Lord, so, so fill us with a greater understanding of it. We ask it in your name. Amen.